Welcome to The Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association provides creative opportunities for all ages. Get creative with us at the Mesquite Fine Arts Center, 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartscenter.com or on Facebook, The Art Box. Well, Steve, we've had a great day today. We were able to sit down with our first Clouds in the Sand guest, Rex. We saw Rex again today and had coffee with him this morning. Yes, we did, and he's looking well. He is. Right now in our studio here is Pericles. We're so glad you're here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to meet you both, and it's, uh, it's great to have, have a conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Well, you are quite entertaining. We had so much fun. <laughs> I'm glad you. I'm glad you saw the Saturday night show. It was, uh-huh. you know, the second show or Saturday afternoon. The, se- the second show is usually better because everybody's had one show under their belt. Sure. And and Saturday was, I think, just a better show. And there was an. Mm-hmm. There was. I, I think I said it when I was out there. There was a very long set that I did. wasn't intentional. I wasn't supposed to be out that long. I was supposed to be out there three or four minutes, and I couldn't see the sign in the back of the house that says ready and it usually comes on and I can see it for some reason either I was dead center stage too long and the spotlight was right above it and I couldn't see it but I kept looking up and I kept thinking where are they they're not ready what is going on back there all right we're just going for it and I just kept you know doing what I was doing making stuff up and kind of going with it and glancing up and glancing up and nothing huh. and then finally I was like are you guys ready back there? And they're like, yes. <laughs> Holy shnikes, I screwed this up. So it was really funny. And they were all waiting backstage like, why is he taking so long? Why is he out there for so long? It was yeah. really funny. So it was a good show. I'm glad you guys got to see that one. I am too. Yeah. So have you been involved with theater for all of your life? I'm guessing you were in the school plays. <laughs> oh okay. Uh, yeah, I actually, both my parents were in the entertainment industry. My mom and dad met in New York. She was trying to become a Broadway singer and, and actress. <clears throat> and my dad was a writer in New York. They met there, fell in love. And then when they moved to California, which was not long after that, she gave up her career because, uh, or she gave her up, up her career in acting because of the kids. She, they had me. And dad continued to write. He wrote for Gunsmoke and Bonanza. Really? He's a fanatic for the Westerns. You know, if you went to my house at any time, dad was watching an old Western. He just loved those shows. So he was he just thrilled, you know, to be a writer. And so growing up, he had a very quick wit, and I had to, I had to pick up with him. As, as, like I don't, if I was four, five, six, seven years old, if he started in on something with someone, I had to catch on very fast. And if I didn't, I was in trouble later on. So I kind of got that quick thinking wit from him. And then when I was in high school, obviously junior high, high school, loved being in the theater. Got into college, wanted to be an actor. And then found my love behind the stage, uh, backstage as a stage manager. Then I got my equity card and left college because I was working. Started working on equity shows and I was an equity stage manager for probably 13, 14 years. And absolutely loved it. And then got to a place where I hated it. I was just tired of working with finicky, spoiled, difficult people, whether it was designers, directors, or actors. I was just kind of like, you know what, I need to try something else. And then opened a business, 
it, it was a private jewelry business with someone that I that I met, and we created this couture business out in Beverly Hills, and did that for many years, and worked with some extraordinary people, and then. After that, uh, well, during that time as well, I was coaching. I, I was working in personal development, learned how to be a coach and started coaching. So I've been coaching for 30 years. That's, my, that's what I do at, for a living. Theater has always been something that's been part of my blood. And when I moved to Mesquite, my mom was part of the toes. She'd graduated or moved from dancing to being the MC. And that's right. That's she, right. You said that. Yeah. And she had gotten to a point where it was too much for her, you know. I mean, she's almost 90 now, and so she was 85 when she was doing this. And for her, it was a lot, you know. She had to get up, and she had to read everything off the teleprompter, and she couldn't read it anymore or couldn't remember things. So she said, what do you think about taking over? And I was like, okay, you know, let's do it. And so the very first show we did, we did it together. We co-emceed, and it was just a hoot. We had so much fun, and she was great. And then I took it over from there, and the Toes have been incredibly generous and kind to me. They just love having me there, and they ask me for for every show, and I'm happy to do it. So it is the kind of my toe in the water still of of doing what I do. So there you go. I think everybody loves you there. You're so entertaining. <laughs> now, when you said coaching, you coach acting? No, I actually am a, a mindset expert. So I work with people on their mindset. And I have two, two areas of focus. I focus in one, financial. So people want to shift their mindset around finances to be able to create and grow wealth. And the second around, I, I actually work and contract with a company that trains people to be media experts. So people you see on CNN being interviewed as an expert, we train those folks to, okay. to be ready, you know, camera ready, ready to speak in media and, and do all that work. So I work in those both, both those areas as a mindset coach, and I love it. And I bring humor to everything that I do. So all the work that I do, it's, you know, I always try to inject humor because makes things a lot easier. Well, maybe you could work on Linda's mindset. Because <laughs> in her mindset, she keeps calling me old and makes all these old jokes and everything. Well, as a mindset do, expert, do you, you got to really help? call it out and say, when you're when you're on, you're on. You know, when you're spot on on something, there you go. <laughs> well, now I'm being ganged up on you. Yay! There we go. <laughs> high five. Linda's high five. I'm crying. <laughs> Well, I think I, you know I'm pretty close to you. I think so uh, in terms of age. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I'm, 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 I'm up there in the big six zero. So I don't know where you guys are, but we don't need to uh, talk about ages. We're very close to okay. her, and I'm in the, I'm in the sixties. Okay, well. very good. <laughs> I think it's one of the, um, uh, you know, when you apply for your passport to live in Mesquite, it's one of the criteria is that you have to be, you know, a little bit older. <laughs> I think, I think so, yes. The median age here is, what, 62 now? or Something like that. We lived in a tower. The median age was 73. This is Venice, Florida. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. Amazing. I went to a high school football game there once, and I looked around. It was really weird because everybody in the stands and all was young and everything. Mm. I was like, I hope a bomb doesn't go off because there would be nobody to do any work in this town. <laughs> it was an old town. <laughs> anyway. So... You work with your clients, you wrote, to create newfound freedom in yeah. their work and in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You'll, I'll meet someone, a new client, who's struggling to accomplish something. And they're, they may very well be doing what they love, their passion. And yet, they're suffering. 
And so freeing them up from the suffering so that they can actually experience what they truly wanted to do in a way that brings them joy and happiness is part of the work of being a mindset coach is, is really getting them to that place where they see, oh, I've been thinking it from it from this perspective versus this perspective. You know, there's sure. there, it's an old an old adage I love is, you know, this guy's walking down a road and he comes upon this guy who's sweating and grunting and he's he's got an axe and he's picking away at this stone and he just looks annoyed and unhappy and the guy says what are you doing he says i'm chipping this 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 rock i'm chipping stones okay and the guy keeps walking down the road and comes to another guy and he's so excited he's happy he's just humming to himself doing the exact same thing he said what are you doing he says i am building a cathedral and so that shift in mindset is something that i get people to see because you know something as simple as that Everyone can kind of see, but we don't always see it when we're in it. And so when we're in it, you have to have somebody that can actually get you to see what you don't see so that you can get freed from it. That's fascinating. A lot of psychology is involved. <laughs> so how'd you, how'd you get into mindset coaching? It's a good question. You know, I think it was almost 30 years ago, I did a program called Landmark Education. It was, they, they have a, they're an international organization of self-development. I did this three-day course. It was Amazing. I got some really great stuff. And I remember I was doing a follow-up seminar with them. And this woman came in, marched to the front of the, the room and, and said, she's a hillbilly. I, God, I love her. She became my mentor for years so I can make fun of her. She came up and said, if you want to be a, you want to be a leader, you want to come talk to me because I'm going to help you be a leader. And I was like, I want to be exactly like her. I want to know what she's got. Okay. And so I enrolled in her program and she was my mentor and she trained me how to not only be a coach and a leader and, and like that, but to how to train and coach other people. So from that point on, it was kind of no looking back. I, I, I apply it in my life and I love doing what I do. So I've trained other leaders who are committed to leading programs, whether it's on stage or whether it's one-on-one -on -one or groups, but that's kind of the history of that. It, it, you know, once it's in your blood, you never it never leaves you. Sure. Well, your clients, Yeah. do they all come willingly or are there some that are court ordered? <laughs> no, you know, it's, it's a really good question because I, I've actually had people say, you know, oh my gosh, my husband or my wife needs to work with you. I'm like, I'm not working with anybody unless they're willing to work because you can't shift somebody's mindset unless they're really willing to. They can come in and say, look, Pericles, I want to work with you. I, I need to fix this. And then I'll say X, Y, and Z. And then they'll, you know what? You're so blah, 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 but okay, I'll do it. Right. I can work with somebody like that. That's not a problem. They've got to be willing to do it or I can't make a difference. They're willing? Absolutely. If they're unwilling, doesn't make any difference. If you've got gold, they'll never be rich. Good point. Do you meet in your office? No, I work. Oh, it's all all virtual now. Okay. I have clients all over the world. I work with clients from England, and I've worked with clients from you know other areas of Europe. But we have clients all. I have clients all over the United States that I work with, and it's yeah, it's just on Zoom, either a phone call or a Zoom call, mostly on Zoom, because I like to be able to see people. I like to be able because there's so much you can tell when you're looking at someone. They're checking out. If they're annoyed, if they're confronted, if they're challenged by something, you can see it much more easily than you can on the phone. So you weren't impacted at all? In, during, during COVID? Yes, yes. <laughs> Not really, no. I think the, the biggest challenge for me for COVID was making sure my mom was safe because okay. she lives here in Mesquite. And I remember when, it, when, it, when we first went into lockdown and I went over to see her and I said, okay, mom, so here's what's going on. And she's like, okay, 
okay, yep, I understand. I think this would be a really good time for me to start, you know, having things done around the house that I need to have done. I'm like, yep, you're not getting what I'm saying. No one's coming to the house, mom, except for me. I'll be coming over, checking on you every day. I'll go get groceries for you if you need groceries, but you are not leaving the house. And that was, that was a challenge, you know, because she volunteers at the senior center. She's there five days a week. God bless her. She's literally almost 90. She'll be 90 in, in April. And she drives there every day. Wow. And in her world, if she wasn't there, this place is going to shut down, you know, without her. And I love that. She greets every person that's there and she, you know, checks them in and deals with whatever she needs to deal with. And she's phenomenal. She's a fixture there. So not going to the senior center was a, a real issue for her. And then being able having to just sit in the house, that was another one. So that was the biggest challenge for me. The rest was, was easy. You know, yeah, that had me a huge challenge because she must be locked into that. Yeah, she was definitely frustrated at not being able to leave. And, and I think there were a lot of people in Mesquite that were in a similar situation all over the world where they, especially the elderly who didn't have an option, technologically challenged, as it were, you know, so they don't have that access to a Zoom call or that kind of connection. And, you know, and I saw it across the, across the board with, with a lot of people in Mesquite. And, and I know it also hurt her that she wasn't able to go be with the people that she wanted to be and help the people that she wanted to help. Sure. You know, she doesn't just check people in. She does, uh, what does she call them? Oh, they're check-in calls. So she's got five people on her list. She calls just to check in on them every morning when she gets into the senior center because they have no one else. If nobody called them, they wouldn't have anyone else that would reach out. Could she do any of that? Um, from what I understood... I'm trying to think back if she was able to do that at the time. It seems like a long time ago now. It does, doesn't it? It seems like a lifetime ago. But no, I, I all I remember is the lockdown and her not going in, and I don't remember her making any phone calls or telling me about phone calls. I don't know. They probably did, and maybe it just didn't get disseminated to her. Well, it seemed like they shut down almost everything. Mm. So I could understand where they even weren't doing the phone calls. Yep. I mean, I remember my best friend, Stu, he uh, was working at Smith's, you know, and he's like, I'm essential worker and they're going in every day. And of course, he's worried about his health, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm I'm sitting there bowing down to him, thanking him for doing the work and putting his life at risk Mm -hmm. because this was before vaccines. This was before any of that. And, you know, he's going in every day and doing his job and stocking the shelves. And I remember him. He'd call me at the end of the day and he's like, dude, I need to go home and wash this day off of me because he just felt so, you know, because it was just felt so concerned about what was going on. So, yeah, it was it was it was an interesting time. Mm -hmm. And then. And when they came out with the vaccine and they were started doing them here, I was took my mom. We got in line, and you know, I remember taking a picture because I was so excited that she was getting her first shot. So yeah, it was a, it was an interesting time, and I'm rising, very happy. Rising star. Yeah, it was up at the Rising Star. That's where they had the first one at one of the big uh, in one of the big interior rooms. They converted it, and oh man, they did a great job. I'm telling you, I said this at the show, and I'll say it over and over again. Mesquite is amazing when it comes to. Our first responders, fire department, police department, hospital, all of that. And these guys had it handled. They were amazing there. Coordinated, organized, went in, waited in line, sat down. They did their interview, got you set up, moved you to the next space, then did the shot. You waited for a few minutes, you know, and then they sent you on your way. They were great. They were. I remember that. And that was wonderful, too. The mayor was doing the weekly podcast. You're right. Everything is just... Yep. 
Fantastic here as far as city services. It was great, and and they've mm-hmm. been phenomenal. You know, and it's interesting because I read sometimes people complaining about certain things, and I've just never had that experience. You know, I've been at the hospital twice for surgery. Mm-hmm. One was an emergency surgery, and they took amazing care of me. You know, and what I just hear? couldn't be happier with 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 them and the service that I. In fact, after I think it was after my. Yeah, it was emergency surgery. I didn't know what was going on. I'd been up for days with stomach pain, and I was in so much pain. Finally, in the middle of the night, went to the hospital. They checked me in. They said, you're jaundice. You've got your gallbladder's about to explode. Wow. Your other organs are now almost infected. We need to, we're trying to decide if we're going to fly you to Vegas to get you emergency surgery, or our new surgeon just arrived yesterday, and we're checking to see if she's ready to do her first surgery. She wasn't a new surgeon, she was just new to Mesquite. You know, she was like well-seasoned surgeon. Dr. Kim came, uh, I heard it, I think it's Dr. Kim, and they finally came in like 10 minutes later, and they said, here we go. I said, where are we going? They said, we're doing surgery. And she came in, did the surgery, and I think three days later I woke up, I was out for quite a while. and. It was incredible. I went to the president of the hospital and told them how amazing the care was, you know, in every step of the way. They were brilliant. Good to know. Yeah. yeah. And there was a bunch of heroes there, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we interviewed one, mm. uh, Michael Knapper. Oh, yes. Did I get his right. name right? Uh-huh. Yeah. During COVID. Yeah. He was there during COVID. Yeah. And he talked to us. Actually, he just had surgery the other day for something. Mm-hmm. So. Did he? I was going to say it's kind of funny to see him on the other side, but maybe it wasn't funny. <laughs> although, although he laughed about it. He put it up on Facebook. Well, a friend of mine is uh, works over there in the pharmacy, and uh, he, he's a pharmacist. And he was saying, I think, if this is accurate, that they, you know, they closed down the maternity ward, but they turned that into a COVID ward during the time of COVID. So they had really good use of that space during the time that, you know, it was going on. So you were born and raised in L.A., but you moved to Paris, France? Yeah. How did that impact you? Oh, wow. You know, Paris was the most amazing thing of my life. I remember when I first went in 2004, I got off the plane and I said, I'm going to live here. I'm going to live here. And What did you go there for? Vacation. Yes. Yes. And uh, the person I had a business with at the time, we'd gone together. And literally, we got off the plane and said, we're going to live here. The problem was our business. We needed to, because we were doing jewelry and the way we did our work, technology was not at the place where we could work remotely from anywhere in the country. We had to be where we were, in Beverly Hills, close to downtown LA, where we did our manufacturing and we sourced our gemstones and things like that. But we said, we're going to live here. And we went every year. For the next 10 years, every single year, we'd go for a, either a month or we'd go twice for two weeks because we wanted to spend that time there. And I remember August came around in 2014 and we said, OK, we're done. We're going for the month of August. This is it. This is either going to be our vacation or we're going to actually move. That's the end of it. And so we got off the plane and said, we're moving. Literally stepped off the plane. We're moving. Got into our uh, we, we were always renting a place. So we got in the in the apartment and spent the month, had a great time. Got home, I had to sell our house, I had to sell all of our stuff that wasn't gonna fit into, I had to find an apartment in Paris. 
So I was doing all of that. So I found an apartment in Paris, beautiful place. It was three bedrooms, two bathrooms on the sixth floor of an old Hausmann building, which are those old beautiful stone buildings that you see in the pictures with a view of the Eiffel Tower. I, I got visas for both of us. I got visas for the dogs because we were bringing the dogs and the visas for the dogs were more complicated than us. We, were, we went from 3,300 square feet down to 1,500 square feet. So I had to sell all the stuff that we weren't using. I had to hire a company to pack us up, ship us out there. And literally on December 31st, 2014, we were on a plane flying over, celebrated New Year's Eve on the plane, landed, and then I was in Paris. And I made probably some of the closest friends of my life there and had the, the, the best time for three and a half years. They were just extraordinary. And experience of, of living someplace like that, first of all, it's a, I like to call it a living museum because everywhere you go, it's beauty. Everywhere you go, it's history. And the ability to travel very close. You know, I was in, in London or in Italy or in Spain or in Denmark or in Sweden. You know, you, you could go anywhere in a very short period of time, especially by train. I love the fact that I didn't need a car was just the coolest thing because being from L.A., I always had a car and didn't have to drive anywhere. I could get on a train or a metro and get wherever I wanted. It was just tremendous freedom for me in that. I loved it. And then I came back to the United States and the timing was perfect because shortly after that, COVID hit and I needed to be here for my mom to make sure she was taken care of. That's not why I came back. It's a sordid story. Not a sordid story. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So the person I was with, we were together for 23 years. Every So we worked together. We lived together. All of that. And every quarter, one of us would take a vacation alone because we were always together. And it's what we'd been doing for almost two decades. He said, I'm going on. He's going on his trip. I was going to go to Baden-Baden during that time. Just before I was leaving, he sent me an email saying it was over. Oh After 23 years, I got an email saying, "Oh God, it's over." I, and I didn't mean to take it. No, 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 no. It's totally okay. fine. It's no, there's no, no. There's no charge around it. It's just I, you know, just kind of this crazy story. Not and a tweet. So, not a tweet. No, he was generous enough to send me an email. <laughs> two, in fact, right. And so, and what I didn't know was that he'd been planning this for two years and had a place and was all moved out, was not coming back and was actually planning on doing it while I was in Baden-Baden. But I canceled my trip at the last minute. And anyway, so here I was in this huge apartment in Paris, no ability to work there because I didn't have a work visa. We had a tourist visa. He was he had taken all the business and, and managed to work it so that he was now in control of the finances. So I was literally in another country where I couldn't work and trying to figure out what I was going to do. Oh, wow. And, you know, there was a there was a level of trauma that was something I'd never experienced in my life. You know, I'd never gone through something like this before. And my friends in Paris were the most amazing. I remember when I read the email, I remember texting my next door neighbor Marie, uh, Jean-Mathieu uh, and, and Marie live next door in the building and with their two kids. I said, Marie, he left me. And she's like, what? I don't understand. It was like, she, it didn't make any sense to her, right? It didn't make any sense to me. I, and I told, and she said, I'm coming over. And she came over and just sat with me while I just, you know, bawled. And then finally she said, okay, I love the way they say my name, Pericles. Okay, Pericles, we're going to go to the country house. I'm going to go get John with you. You pack something and we're going to meet you over there in, the, in front of the, the apartment. And we're just going to go to the country house for a few days. And so I packed up my dog, Harry, and packed up a suitcase and got in their car and we drove out to the country house. And I remember sitting in a fireplace, in front of their fireplace for like three days and just sat there and they were totally fine. You know, they would 
do what they were doing and come in and check on me and do what they were. And the French are so pragmatic about things like that. You know, they they understand that life doesn't always go the way it's going to go. And they don't make a big deal about it. They don't get drama about it. They just deal with it. And that's what they did. And so John Matthew and Marie were my rocks during that time. And then my other friends, Justin, Nico, and all of them were phenomenal. They were all just right there for me. They got me through it, you know. And so then finally I decided, okay, you know, I can't afford to keep paying for an apartment without having some source of income, so I need to move back to the United States. So I came here because I knew I needed to be close to family. I knew I needed to be close to someone who I could lean on and someone who could take care of Harry when I was doing whatever I needed to do. And your mom was already and in Mesquite. that was my mom. Yeah, my mom was in Mesquite, so that's why I decided. I wasn't going back to California simply because for the three and a half years I lived in LA, I mean, lived in Paris, I was paying California state tax on all my income, and I wasn't living in California. So I'm like, well, forget them. I'm moving someplace where they don't have state taxes. And it was perfect for Mesquite because that's where my mom was. So that's how I ended up back in Mesquite. The mindset work was something that made a difference. You know, when you're in the middle of trauma, you've got to deal with your grief. You've got to just allow the grief to come through. But then there's a point where you move beyond what I like to say is beyond the grief having you and you having grief. You know, I've I've got the emotions right now versus the emotions having me. And when you're in the moment of it, the emotions have you. There's nothing you can do about it. And my friends were just extraordinary there. So, yeah. And why did different. Why did your mom move to Mesquite? Her sister lives here, and her sister used to live up in in Utah with her husband. And they came down and found Mesquite, like most people find Mesquite, and and she they fell in love with it and moved here. My mom and dad were had lived in California, went to Vegas to retire, and she's like, oh, you need to come up to Mesquite because mom and dad were complaining about Vegas, how crazy it was and busy and mm-hmm. you know. And so they came up and they fell in love with it and they found a place and moved in right away. Dad passed away about, I think it was about 14 years ago. And so she, and she's stayed. She just loved it. So my mom lives here. Her sister lives here, who's now a widow. And then her brother lives here with his wife. So they're all three, all, everyone that's living in my mom's family, her siblings are now in Mesquite. And she's very happy. It's great to have lots of family. I I just find it so interesting how people end up here. Uh There's a lot of people from Alaska that are here. And I know that they even have like an Alaska thing, and they're like, they go to this Alaska party every year and say, Really? Oh, well, I know this person. I know that person. <laughs> but they somehow ended up in Mesquite. Mm. Yeah, everybody seems to have their own unique story of how they ended up in Mesquite, you know, and, and they're, it's eclectic, and you just never know. And I've met some amazing people here. You know, you get people that are hardened, you know, tough people who've lived through wars and, you know, and they're just, and they're so sweet and, and on one side and tough on the other side. And then you see these, these guys, they drive their trucks and they're, you know, married and grandkids and all that. But you see them picking up their little white dog at Lottie Paws and it's a whole different person comes out. <laughs> oh, my little sweet, you know, and it's just so sweet to see that. So yeah, it's, it's a great town. I re- I never thought I'd stay here. I actually was going to move to Vegas. And then I, really fell in love with it. I'm like, you know what? This is a safe place. I don't have to worry about getting mugged or or crime. It just doesn't happen here. Mm-hmm. Why, why would I move to Vegas? I can be in Vegas in an hour and 15 minutes, an hour if I put the pedal down, you know, <laughs> and it's great. So it's this is the perfect place for me. Okay. You bought up dogs. So why Harry? Where's the name come from? Good question. It's it's all part of the sordid plan my ex had. He said to me eight months before he left, we should get you a dog. Because we had a dog, and 
I was the caretaker of the dog. We loved, I love Tink. I miss Tink to this day. But he said, I, I think you should get a dog. It's time for you to get your own dog. I said, okay. So we went, and so Harry's a French poodle, 100% purebred French poodle. He only speaks French, or at least, well, he's bilingual now. And, uh, but yeah, he only spoke French up until the time that I moved here. And my mom's French-Canadian, so she loved that. She would speak to French to him as well. Um, but now, with being here for so long, you know, he speaks more, he understands English and French, so he'll under, you know, respond to both commands. I've never heard of a bilingual dog. It's <laughs> amazing. Well, I think, I think all cats are bilingual because they just don't pay attention. They don't listen to anything. Yeah, exactly. Well, you heard the the joke about the dog and the cat that go to heaven and God sitting up on the throne and and the dog says to to God, you know, I was a good boy. I was I obeyed my master and protected our home and I loved their kids and was loyal to them to the very very end. And God said, wonderful. You know, please come in. And then God looked at the cat and the cat looked at God and said, you're in my chair. <laughs> it's kind of cats, you oh, know. There you go. <laughs> so you're here now with your husband, Ben. Yep. And your dog, Harry. Yes. And Harry's now learning Thai because my husband's Thai. Oh, so he, he's trilingual. He's learning all three languages. And it's really funny. I'll hear Ben speaking to him in Thai and he'll respond. And, you know, so, yeah, he's trilingual. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, maybe Harry could start teaching language. <laughs> Linda and I both talked about you at the recent Mosquitoes, where things weren't going well, and you you salvaged victory <laughs> from defeat. You know, it's it's interesting because, uh, and I remember that very well. There was, you know, the the lights had gone down, the curtains had closed, and and there was nothing happening. You know, and I'm I'm backstage waiting, and I'm tr- I'm trying to remember. I think there was that was a spot where I was supposed to go out. So it was in the script where I was going to go out and do some fill. But I always wait until I get the cue. And I wasn't getting the cue. And I knew the curtains were down. It was closed. And I knew the lights were down. And I, and I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And nothing was happening. And the stage manager on the deck right behind me didn't know what. She's like, I'm not sure what's going on. I said, what's going on? She said, I'm not sure what's going on. And finally, I just said, just tell them to turn the spotlight on and turn the sound on. I'm going out because I didn't want the audience sitting there wondering what's going on. And so that's what I did. And, you know, you you, you just have to roll with the punches, because in, especially in live theater. It's not like here where we can edit something out, we make a mistake, something goes wrong. In live theater, there are no second chances, you know. And I worked in live theater for 15 years, and I've seen everything happen. And you literally have to be quick on your feet and just roll with the punches. And the best way, especially when it's when it's comedy, it is important for you to not get embarrassed, you know, and and to just own what happened. I've I've gone out and done jokes, and they and they literally look oh. Right. And when you hear that, that's the worst thing you want to hear when you're when you're trying to be funny and people are moaning. And I remember the first time that happened, I said, look, folks, they don't get much better than this. And everybody just howled. And it's, you know, when you can own that you blew it or you own that something didn't go right and you can make fun of yourself and laugh at yourself. People love it, especially in theater. People want you to win. And when you mess up, they want you to own it and move forward. And they'll love you the more more for it. You know, they'll they, they just do. I remember, if I can tell a little anecdote from uh, back in my theater days, I had a friend who was doing the national tour of Damn Yankees with Jerry Lewis. And it was Jerry Lewis's dream 
to do live theater. He'd never done a Broadway show before. He'd done everything else, done radio and television and films, but he had never done live theater and he wanted to do that. So this was a huge kind of like coup d'etat for him. It was just the perfect cap to his his career. And I was blessed to have met him. We went backstage before the show started and I was on stage with my friend who was the company manager. We were just chatting and Jerry walked up. And my friend Bruce says, Pericles, I want you to meet Jerry Lewis. Jerry, this is this is my friend um, Pericles. And Jerry shook my hand and I knew that this was something he loved doing. And I, they'd just gotten in from New York and I, we started talking. I said, so, so how do you like the audiences in LA versus the audiences in New York? And we just kind of started chatting about that. And then Bruce left. And so Jerry and I are just sitting there chatting for the longest time. And then finally it was time for the show to start. And so I left and went out into the audience. At one point during the show, Jerry's doing a, a scene with whatever his name is from the, from the lead of the show, the baseball player. He's Jerry's the devil and this Joe, I think it's Joe. Yes, Fearless Joe from Hannibal Bow. And Jerry starts laughing and he's breaking and he can't, he literally can't. And then the guy who's playing Hannibal, J Joe is starts laughing. And then Jerry just puts his hand on the guy's shoulder and the two of them are trying desperately to stop laughing. And the audience is in tears. They're laughing so hard <laughs> watching these two actors just desperately try to pull it back together again and not laugh. And we just absolutely loved it. It was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And then they just finally, they got it together and they moved on. So after the show, I went up to my friend Bruce and I said, did you see what happened? He's like, what happened? I said, Jerry broke. He said, yeah, he put that on the show like six weeks ago. He does it every show. <laughs> but it was so amazing. Nobody knew, you know, that this was part of the gig. And a lot of people used to do that. Carol Burnett used to, they used to do it on purpose because it, people loved it. But even when you don't know, you still love the fact that they're struggling because you see that reality. You see that real human being there. And that's what people love to connect with. And so that's where I find the best humor is, is when you're connecting with people on a real human level, whatever it is. And in the work that I do, you connect with people on a human level and they love it. Oh, I bet. And your experience earlier in France, as painful as, as it was, I'm sure that it helps you do the mind coaching even better. The old song that says, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger is yeah. true, you know, and there are people who live through some horrific things, and I have no judgment about this whatsoever, but they live through horrific things, but you can see that they've never moved past that. They're mm -hmm. still in that incident, right? That's one thing that can happen, and that's tragic. But there are other people that are like, no, this is not going to define me. This is going to make me a better person. This is going to make me live a richer life, or whatever that may look like. And being able to own that. And I see that for myself. You know, I learned a lot about myself. First thing I learned was I was not good at leaning on other people. I was the person everybody leaned on. I was the person everybody came to when they needed something. And I remember sitting in that apartment all by myself, just just crying and thinking, I can't, I can't ask them for anything more. I cannot ask them for anything more. They're going to resent me. They're going to be upset with me. They're going to think whatever. And then I finally, I said, no, this is exactly what friends are for. They're here for you, Pericles. You need to lean on them. And I leaned on them more than I've leaned on, leaned on anyone. And it was, it was what I needed. So for me, the breakthrough was that. And that's made a difference. And so I use that when I'm coaching other people as well. I can speak from my experience. When someone else is going through trauma, I can say... It may not be the same trauma, but I understand what trauma's like. I can understand what you're going through. And I can be not just compassionate, but I can also know what they're going through because I've been through it. Right. I have to ask you about your name. I was a teacher <laughs> for 25 years, and I never had a Pericles yes. in class. It sounds like it comes from 
Greek and Roman mythology or something. Yes. Like it is, it's actually a historical name. Pericles was the king of Greece during the 450 BC. Okay. He was a Greek statesman, Greek military officer, and ended up become, becoming the king of Greece for a period of time. My grandparents on my dad's side of the family were Greek immigrants, and my grandfather's name was Pericles. Mm -hmm. The tradition in the Greek family is you name the firstborn son after the father's father. And so my grandfather's name was Pericles Christos Rellis. My dad's name was Christos Pericles Rellis, and my name is Pericles Christos Rellis. It's as simple as it gets. <laughs> but yes, that's where that's where it came from. And whole life, you know, people throughout college and elementary school, all you know, Pericles, I've never heard that before. And so it's it's been a, a, a conversation starter at best. I've had other people get annoyed about it. You know, who would name their kid Pericles, you know, but it's a, it's a great name and I love it and I try to live up to it. It is a great name. Is Thank it, you. It's very distinguishing. First grade teacher. Did they butcher Pericles? Oh, yeah. I always knew as they were going down the roster, I was just sitting there waiting for them to stop. Because uh -huh. it would be like Steve, Jane, Tom. <laughs> Pericles. I'd raise my hand at Pericles. Oh, yes, that's it. You know, because I, I just always knew every year when we started a new class, that's the way it was going to go. That's funny what you say about your name, though, because that's my mom. My mom's name is Claudette. She was raised as Claudette. She didn't find out that her first name isn't Claudette until she was in her 30s. When she was born, her mother named her Madeline. Madeline Claudette Mousset. Her godmother hated Madeline and said, I'm never going to call her Madeline. I'm going to call her Claudette and called her Claudette from that day on. And for some reason it stuck. And so she was, she related to herself as, as Claudette her whole life and didn't know until she was in, I think when she had to get her first birth certificate or something like that. And she got the birth certificate for whatever it was. And she looked and she said, wait, wait, this is wrong. And she called her mom and said, mom, what's going on? No, no, your name is actually Madeline. We just call you Claudette. <laughs> so you're not the first person. <laughs> I missed all first grade because of it. <laughs> I had no idea who that James Studrow was. You didn't think you had to do anything, did you? Well, no, I left. Did he get good grades at least? <laughs> I, James probably did. <laughs> Too funny. Pericles, if you could go back in time, and I'll limit this to the art world, but expand it if you want, mm. where would you go and why? I would go back to the time of Marie Antoinette and Louis the Sixteenth. I especially living there. I was a huge Francophile before we ever moved and just the 10 years leading up to that. Love French history. I have a lot of French antiques in my home. I, w I used to go to Versailles once or twice a month because it was a short train ride from where I lived and just walk the gardens and it was spectacular. And I loved the era. Now, having read a lot of the history books, the aroma in Versailles was, was horrific because it, this is one of the biggest chateaus in the entire world, palaces, not a single bathroom. And so everybody relieved themselves in the stairwells and in the corners and like that. But for the art, for the the architecture, for the the music, all of those things. I mean, you know, that was a period of time, I think Mozart and Moliere and, and you know, Mansart and some of the greatest artists in the world were. And I just, I would love to have, I'd love to just take a moment and look in that, that period of time and see what it was really like. 
So, and you know, maybe you could go back with COVID so you couldn't smell anything. <laughs> Lose your sense of smell, but keep that sense of taste because they had some extraordinary food. What does the future hold for you? That's a good question. You know, I love what I do, and I think settled here for a while. I went to Thailand for the first time. I'd never been to Asia. And so we went to Thailand for the first time in September, and I fell in love with it. It's a beautiful country. And I think that we will spend more time there. And I think it may be on the short list of places to retire. You know, once all is said and done, and I'm at a place where, like, you know what? I'm comfortable not working anymore because I love working. I just love my, I think I'd go nuts if I was retired. I just wouldn't know what to do with myself. And so I think maybe moving to Thailand, but we'll see. I, I'm, I'm not one to force an outcome. You know, I kind of, I like to say what I'm looking for in general terms, and then let the universe kind of provide, provide it in what it looks like. So, Can you define your definition of creativity? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I just said it, which is interesting. I really do believe creation comes from nothing. We, we can make something out of something else, and there can be creativity in that. That's, there's a lot of amazing creative people that do that, and I'm not diminishing that at all. I think the purest form of creativity comes from when maybe we have an idea or there's, there's something that's germinating, but we just let go of all of our preconceived notions and we literally just let that space of nothingness overwhelm us. And then what shows up inside of that is where that creativity comes from. There are times when, like at the last Mosquito show, when I was out there for a very long time, I'd done all the material that I had. And I knew in that moment, like, okay, I'm not getting the sign here to go that they're ready. I need to just wing it. And rather than panic, I just let go. And I just let nothing overwhelm me and kind of wash over me. And then the next thing to say showed up. And it was right there in that space. And so I love really letting those creative juices flow inside of nothing so they're not influenced by anything. And then when you're in front of an audience, they get influenced by the audience who's sitting out there. You know, you may just glimpse someone or hear something or sense something. And then that's the question to ask. You know, it's like, oh, there's there's the next joke right there. Just said it. And I did that. I did that at the show. The only regret I have from that show was was this one thing. I'd done the whole bit about my mom getting hit on at the senior center by these, you know, dirty old men who come to the senior center and just like are hitting on her all the time. And then at one point I said, what's, you know, I asked what well, the worst part of growing up is being growing old is. And somebody said a few things. And then I said, what, what are some of the good things about growing old? And this guy said Viagra. Oh, and I walked off the, after I'd finished the set, I walked off the stage and I said, Pericles, you should have looked at mom in that moment and said, that's the guy that hit on you at the senior center. I know it. Right. And I just did. I missed it. But it was, you know, it was one of those moments that you just missed. But yeah, creativity is, is really, I think, looking at that blank canvas and then seeing what shows up or looking out in that audience with nothing and just letting it show up. And I think there's some extraordinary things that can come from that. And that's the the adventure, you know, is is trusting that it will show up, but not knowing what it's going to be. You connect with your audience a lot. Yes. I, even before you started the verbal interaction, when I was watching the show earlier, I thought, gosh, he's looking at me. You know, because a lot of times actors, they'll look at the heads of the people right. over their heads. But I felt like there were some times where you had definite contact, eye contact with me and others in yep. the audience. That comes from 
and I'm going to give this up to Candace, my my mentor, my hill, you know, my hillbilly from from Arkansas. Or I think she said Arkansas, she's Arkansas. She taught me that when you're standing, you know, there's a difference between an actor who's up on stage and there's that fourth wall. We're not to, you know, they're not supposed to break that fourth wall. But somebody who's speaking, doing public speaking, and they're talking to a large group of people. You want people to have that experience, and you do that by actually making eye contact with as many people throughout the audience as possible. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm just gonna scan around like this. No, 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 you can't just scan around because nobody's gonna have the experience of you speaking to them. And you can't just look at the back of the audience because nobody's gonna have the experience of you looking at them. And so you're saying what you just said with such a validation of that. It's because I do, I actually, even with the spotlight, because you can't really see people, but I'm picking out in the darkness a person that I'm looking at for a couple of seconds and speaking to them. And then I'm jumping over to the next person and speaking to them. And then the next person, by the time you're finished, everyone has the experience of you being with them. And that's what you want them left with because then they have that connection. So thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's true. That's that's really interesting yeah. how you do that. I, I love that. Uh, <laughs> and I love this interview, uh, by the way. <laughs> if I forget to tell you later. <laughs> I've had a great, this has been amazing for me as well. I really appreciate it. It's been an extraordinary experience. Thank you. Oh, thank you for coming. Pericles, we always ask our last question, what has inspired you this week? What has inspired me this week? Let me think for a second. And by the way, while you're thinking... Um, next year, if you want me to be the Viagra plant in the audience, <laughs> so you can get that joke in, yes, I'll do that. Yeah. Just Thank let you. me know. I appreciate it. <laughs> you are so good. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, I think for this week, I put my mom on a plane to go visit my sister in L.A., and I think that she's extraordinary to me. My mom has been a rock in my life since I was since I can remember and my mom gave up her career in the theater to get a job a full-time job so that my dad could continue doing his writing which was always you know in the, any kind of industry like that you just it's never consistent she worked a full-time job she raised two children and then a third child my dad right which is what <laughs> mostly happens she would work all day she would come home and make dinner she would take care of the kids and then I remember one time she said, I'm going to get my AA degree. I want to be the first one in my family to get a college degree. And so she would take night classes at the local community college. For two years, I think she did that, or three years she did that. And she got her degree. And I remember going to the graduation. And then she decided she wanted to do this. And then she did that. And then, you know, she came to Mesquite. And she decided she wanted to be part of the Mosquitoes. And she tap danced until my father was too ill. And she had to stop doing that to take care of him. And then he passed. And then she went back and danced again and then emceed again. I'm inspired by her spirit. My mom is an extraordinary human being. And she's loved my sister and I unconditionally. She's loved everyone that's been a part of our lives unconditionally. She's, I think she loves my dog, Harry, more than she loves me. And that's totally fine, right? <laughs> but she inspires me. She inspires me to be a better person every day, to look outside of myself and see what can I do to make the world a better place in this moment. And that's what I love about her. I love sitting with her at the end of the day when I go pick up Harry and she tells me about how her day was at the senior center and the people that she met and the, the lives that she touched and who touched her as well. That's, that's what inspires me this week. That's beautiful. It is. Thank you. Heracles, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. This was a fascinating interview, wasn't it, Steve? Yeah, it, was, it was a great interview. 
And he had to think a couple weeks ago when I handed him a card in the lobby in the middle of everybody's like saying, Pericles, you're wonderful. And hand him a card and said, hey, be on our podcast. I was, it was a, I was literally, ta- I did no idea that, that this existed. No offense. I just didn't know, you know. And then for you to say that, it was like, wow, I was really honored and 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 acknowledged so thank you both for having me on i really appreciate it it's been a a pleasure and an honor to meet you both and, and to chat today Broadcasting from the Mesquite Works Steam Center in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Artbox sponsors thank you for listening. You can find us on Spotify and Amazon Music. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We welcome all comments. You can email us at artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.